And so to that thought, let us look together at God's word in Luke chapter 9. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. This is his inner circle, by the way. And he goes up into a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they, that is Peter, James, and John, kept silent and told no one in those days nothing of what they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus turned and said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Do you know this morning that the term Christian is only used three times in Scripture? And not at all in the Gospels. And that, that's because followers of Jesus were identified not as Christians, but as disciples. It, it wasn't until much later in the book of Acts, during the explosion of the church, that the term Christian 
started being used. But it's actually never recorded as being used by Christians. Followers of Jesus referred to themselves as disciples, as saints, and often called one another brothers and sisters, but never Christians. Followers of Jesus, in fact, gained the term Christian in somewhat of a derogatory fashion. Unbelieving Greeks would use the word to mock those who wouldn't stop talking about Christ. And that's where the term Christian came from, which is why Peter in his letter encouraged his readers not to be ashamed for being called Christian. Now, my, my point in telling you all of this is that we use the term Christian far more frequently and even differently than the first Christians actually did. And I think understanding this is important if we want to truly, and I mean truly understand the essence of what it means to follow Jesus and belong to him. Because to follow Jesus and belong to him, we need to have a biblical clarity on what Jesus called his followers. And that brings me back to the word disciple. Jesus didn't call his followers Christians. He called his followers disciples. Disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Well, a Christian disciple was and is one who follows Jesus, worships Jesus, and seeks to imitate Jesus. So whatever you think this morning in your mind a Christian is, Here's what the Bible actually teaches. A Christian is a disciple who follows Jesus, worships Jesus, and seeks to imitate Jesus. A disciple who follows Jesus, worships Jesus, and seeks to imitate Jesus. And friends, that is a lifetime journey. It's what we call discipleship. The entire span of our life being centered on learning from Jesus, growing in Jesus, and becoming more and more like Jesus. That is Christian discipleship. And the question that I want us to really think about this morning is that as we follow Jesus in Christian discipleship, what is it exactly that we are learning? What are the fundamental tenets that Jesus teaches his disciples to be committed to? That's our text today. And it gives us a really clear look at the heart of Christian discipleship, what it is that every Christian disciple is called to. Well, here's the first thing. Every Christian disciple is called to daily abandonment. Daily abandonment. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. 
take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want this morning to come to Jesus, you can come to Jesus. But to come to Jesus, you must deny yourself. You must take up his cross and you must follow him. This is salvation's call. No one truly follows Jesus until they have experienced first an abandonment, a detachment, a full and total denial. But of what, you might ask? Ourselves. An abandonment of ourselves, a detachment from ourselves, a denial of ourselves. What does that even mean to deny ourselves? It doesn't mean just to go without things. Even unbelievers can deny certain things in their lives. To deny yourself means to dethrone yourself. It's to resign. To resign from being the one who reigns over your life. And to now yield that reign completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me very clearly this morning. You cannot follow Jesus unless you walk away from yourself. And this abandonment also involves taking up Christ's cross. This, of course, is identity with him and what he has done in our place. But it's also a willingness to bear the marks of his cross on our lives. And what are the marks of his cross? What is it that the cross symbolizes? Well, the cross is a place of suffering. To take up the cross means I am willing to embrace and endure whatever suffering the cross demands on my life. It's a place of sacrifice. Again, to take up the cross means I am willing to endure and embrace whatever sacrifice I must make for the cause of Christ's gospel. And the cross is also a place of shame. Ridicule, condescension. And to take up his cross is to be willing to endure and embrace whatever shame comes upon my life, maybe even from those whom I feel like or once thought loved me best. I'm willing to endure it for Christ's sakes. It's whatever the cross requires of me, I will endure, I will embrace. And notice how this abandonment is to be a daily thing. Did you notice that? Deny yourself and take up his cross daily. And that's where the battle really is, isn't it? It's recognizing that every day I'm my biggest problem. Some of you may have walked in this room this morning with a with a lot of problems with a whole lot of other people. But let's just be honest. We are our biggest problems. And every day, every day, not just the day that I chose to follow him, but the next day and the next day and the next day and every day of my life, I need his authority and his lordship over my life. 
This is the essence of true discipleship, true Christianity. Denying ourselves and taking up his cross is our way of life for every day of our life. He's not asking us to do this occasionally. He's not asking us to do this periodically. He's not even asking us to just do this on the Lord's day. But every day, every day, say no to you and yes to Christ. Every day, completely surrender. Every day, total abandonment. Every day, deny myself. Every day, make Jesus Lord. Every day, take up his cross in my life. And those who do are truly following him because they've committed their entire life, all of their days to the abandonment of self and the authority of Christ. And the question is this morning, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to live in daily abandonment to Christ? And I ask that question because of the very next verse, verse 24. For for whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying if you live for yourself, you're going to die. But if you die to yourself, you're going to live. Those who live for themselves never truly find satisfaction and peace. In fact, they lose their souls. But those who deny themselves... Those who live for the cross of Jesus will gain more than money, more than luxury, more than education, more than popularity, more than comforts and conveniences. They will gain more than the world could ever provide, and their souls will in the end be saved. So why wouldn't you want to abandon everything if you know abandon it leads to salvation? I must move on, but at the heart of Christian discipleship is a daily abandonment. Not my will, but his will be done. Think about it like this. The first step to Christian discipleship, the first step to Christian discipleship is to step down. It's to step down in daily abandonment. Well, not only daily abandonment, but we see a second portion of discipleship, the heart of Christian discipleship. Daily abandonment, but secondly, undivided attention. Undivided attention. It brings us to a monumental moment in Christ's earthly life. It's what we call his transfiguration. Starting at verse 28, Jesus takes with him alone his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They go up high into a mountain for the purpose of praying. Now, the scripture says that while Jesus is praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, in in this unique moment, Jesus is revealing the fullness of his divine glory. He's helping his inner circle of Peter, James, and John to put, if you will, the theological pieces together. Everything they've been observing, watching, seeing, it's time to put it all together and really understand or make sure they see who Jesus is. And that is, he isn't just a man, he's the God man. 
He's God in the flesh. And so his appearance transfigures into this divine, glorious revelation that clearly speaks to the fact that Jesus is God. And as they're watching this, they notice that two men show up with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Now, this is incredible because if you're new to studying the Bible, Moses and Elijah aren't alive. (laughs) They've since passed many, many years ago. But right there on this mountain in the presence of Christ's transfiguration is two men appearing in front of the Lord. And as Peter, James, and John are watching Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they observe the three of them having a conversation. I don't have time to go into this, but the scripture alludes to the fact that uh, their conversation was about his impending crucifixion. At which point, Peter then decides to say something. He decides to speak up. Now, let's be honest. There, There are moments that we experience in life that the best thing for you and I to do is to just stand quietly and take it all in. But that's not how Peter operates. And let's be honest, that's not how a lot of us operate either. Peter ruins something. He ruins a wonderful moment by deciding to speak up. And again, we we are often guilty of this same erroneous impulse. We ought to be staying quiet and allowing the Lord to do what he's wanting to do. We decide to try to fix it. And what we end up doing is making it worse. So Peter speaks up. Verse 33, Master, you know what? If you don't mind me saying so, it's really good that we're here with you today. It's good, it's good. Good for us to be here this morning. It's kind of a cringeworthy moment, isn't it? I mean, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what are you doing, Peter? Shut up for crying out loud. This is a glorious moment. Jesus is there in his transfigured state. You're allowed to see something that the rest are not able to see yet. And Moses is there. And Elijah's there. And they're talking about something you need to listen to. Peter, stay quiet. You're fixing to ruin the whole thing because you just had to say something, didn't you? It's good for us to be here. I got an idea. That's what Peter says. I got an idea. Let's, let's make three tents, okay? Uh, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Essentially what Peter wanted was to go ahead and establish a kingdom on earth. Build a tabernacle from Jesus, for Moses and Elijah, in order for them to have a place from which they could rule that kingdom. Peter's thinking, ah, Moses is one of the greatest prophets we've ever had. So is Elijah. Here we have Jesus. Let's just let all three of them rule on this mountain the entire earth. Of course, there are so many things that are wrong about Peter's idea, isn't it? There's the issue of Peter thinking that Jesus should bypass the cross. 
We also have the issue of Peter suggesting Moses and Elijah are actually equal to Jesus in divine essence and character. But because I'm also one of those people who speak up from time to time trying to fix something when I should have just kept my mouth quiet and the whole thing would have been better, I want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt because I'm not even sure Peter even knew what he was saying. <laughs> have you ever been there? You say something and you go like, I don't, I don't even know what I was saying. But the text indicates that Peter just kept talking. He just kept talking. He wouldn't shut up. What could have been a 30-minute meeting ended up being a five-hour conversation because Peter won't be quiet. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, while Peter was talking, Jesus had to interrupt. This cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they, afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud. This is the voice of God. And he says from this cloud, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And when the voice spoke, Jesus was standing there alone. In other words, God comes in the form of this cloud and he moves Moses and Elijah out of the way to direct Peter, James, and John to Jesus only. Jesus only. We don't worship Moses, Peter. We don't worship Elijah, Peter. It's Jesus only. And the statement he made clear, stop talking, stop talking, and listen. Listen to my son. Give him your affection. Give him your attention. Give him your adoration. Give him your allegiance. This is my chosen one, Peter. Listen to him. Stop talking so much and listen to him. It was another lesson on their discipleship journey as well as my own and I dare say yours also. As disciples of Jesus, we are to commit our undivided attention to the voice of Christ. I wonder today, are you listening to Jesus. And listening is not just hearing, it's hearing and obeying. That's the heart of Christian discipleship. Listening to Him. Listening to Him. Giving Him our undivided attention. And there's a third element as we move into verse 37. What's at the heart of Christian discipleship? What are the fundamental tenets that Jesus is teaching his disciples to know and do as we follow him? Well, daily abandonment, undivided attention. Thirdly, humble dependence. Humble, humble dependence. So the next day as Jesus came down from the mountain there in verse 37, he was met by a great crowd of people. In the crowd was a father who came to Jesus and he said, it's there in verse 38, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It shatters him and he will hardly leave him. Now notice this, verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they couldn't. 
They couldn't do it. So the scene we have here is that while Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, were up on the mountain, the remainder of the apostles, the other nine, were down below doing ministry. But the problem is that this demon-possessed boy in need of help could not be healed by the disciples. Now, we've already noted at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus gave his 12 apostles the authority to cast out demons. We've already looked at that. We've noted it. So, So the issue here is not a deficiency in power. It is not a deficiency in authority. But still, they couldn't do it. If they had the power to do it, why couldn't they do it? I've thought a lot about that this week. In fact, in in light of that whole circumstance, I have wondered, you know, God's power is available to us, but how often have we missed opportunities to see that power at work? I think I would be so ashamed and embarrassed to see if God revealed to me the many times that I've missed the opportunity to see his power at work work even though his power was available to me. But why? If the power was available, if the authority had already been given to them, why did they miss the opportunity? Well, Jesus called it, in verse 41, faithless and twisted. Faithless and twisted. That's the reason. The word twisted gives us an indication as to what may have happened. Some translations use the word perverse. Here's what it's describing. It's describing the manner in which we take something intended for God's glory and twist it to make it about us. So their faithlessness was due to their twisted mentality. Their twisted philosophy in that moment about ministry. They took something that was intended for the glory of God and they began to make it about themselves. Luke leaves this part out, but in Matthew's gospel, as he's writing about this in chapter 17, the disciples actually come to Jesus privately and they ask him a specific question about this. And the question is, why could we not cast it out? Why could we, we, that's where the emphasis is. Why couldn't we do this? So here's what seems to happen. While Jesus and the inner circle are on the Mount of Transfiguration, the other nine are down below strutting their stuff, so to speak. Look at us. Hey, God just sent us on this mission and we were healing people and we were casting out demons and we were preaching with authority and power. Man, that was fun. Let's do it again. But this time their disposition was a little different. Their mindset a little skewed. The priorities twisted. And in that moment, their faith seems to be all about them and their new abilities rather than Jesus and his glory. I wonder, are there ever moments in your life that you find yourself thinking, 
Why not me? Why can't I? Instead of humble, we become arrogant. Instead of grateful, we become entitled. Instead of depending on Christ, we rely upon ourselves. We lose sight of what Paul said in all that he accomplished. He wanted us to know it's by the grace of God that I am what I am today. Anything good in me is not because of me. It's because of God and his mercy and his grace and his work through me. You see, the most dangerous threat to your effectiveness in the kingdom of God is you. The most problematic member of this church from my vantage point is me. The issue in your marriage is you. The chaos, it's you. Pride, self-sufficiency, personal glory-seeking, it'll render us ineffective every time and ultimately will leave us as failures. That's what the disciples experienced that day. They experienced failure. They couldn't do it. Not because the power wasn't available, but because they were too high Jesus will teach them and us over and over again that at the heart of Christian discipleship is a humble dependence on God. A true recognition that apart from Christ we are nothing and apart from Christ we can do nothing. But isn't the Lord so patient toward us? I don't know if you noticed it in the reading, but after he calls them faceless, faith faceless, uh, faith, faithless and twisted, Notice what he says, verse 41. How long am I going to be with you and bear with you? Now, every parent in this room understands that question. How long am I going to put up with this? How long do I have to deal with this? Jesus is so patient to deal with it. I want you to see the grace this morning in your pride and you're closing your attention off to him in the times you want to re-enlist yourself on the throne, Christ in his grace is patient towards you. He is willing to bear with you because he's long-suffering. He's not willing for any of us to fail. He wants us all to serve him effectively. He's long-suffering. He's kind. And the disciples certainly learned a valuable lesson that day. While we are quick, quick to quit on one another, Jesus is never slack concerning his promises. So Jesus took the boy, he rebuked the demon, he cast him out, and he healed him. 
And then we see in verse 43, and rightfully so, notice it, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, I have that circled, highlighted, underlined, drawn arrows to it, everything I could do to help me see that. Everybody, everybody was astonished at the majesty of God. The reason why I'm putting so much emphasis on that is because that is my purpose as a disciple of Jesus. To conduct myself and my ministry to you in such a way that others will be astonished at the majesty of God, not at the greatness that I may seemingly possess. And that is the same sentiment of every disciple of Christ. To conduct ourselves and our relationship with each other, our ministries to each other, that others are astonished not at who we are, not at what we've done, but at the majesty and greatness of God. I wonder today, are you humbly depending upon the Lord in all things or have you gotten good at what you do? Have you gotten good at what you do? I got this whole thing figured out. I can do it. Been doing it a long time. I know exactly what needs to be done. I know exactly how to carry it out. Is that how you think this morning? It subtly slips into all of our minds. We take matters into our own hands. We serve according to our strength and our intellect. We make our lives and our gospel ministry about us when Jesus demands humble dependence humble dependence I'm reading a book I think you would appreciate this in fact I've read it three times now since May the title of the book is called Saving Eutychus I know some of you are thinking Pastor you're not doing a good job at this the subtitle is How to Preach God's Word and Keep People from Being Bored to Death So no comments after church about me needing to read it a fourth time. I noted in the book again this week about how one of the temptations for preachers and teachers is that it is so easy to fall in love with the sound of our own voices. Could it be in these moments the disciples fell in love with the work they had been empowered to do greater than the glory God is entitled to receive. One of the fundamental tenets of discipleship is humble dependence upon the Lord. Undivided attention, daily abandonment. Fourthly and finally, gospel-mindedness. Gospel-mindedness. Here's how the section closes. The crowds, they're astonished at another incredible miracle that Jesus had performed. And that's when Jesus immediately turns to the disciples and he says in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, there is something far more important than miracles that you need to be focused on. Something that's going to humble you. Something you need to center your life and ministry on. And here's what he says. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, that's where Luke cuts it off. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail as to what was actually said. He adds this in Matthew chapter 17. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, you and I are on the other side of this, right? We're on the other side of this. 
When Jesus said this to the disciples, this was still yet to come. It has already happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men. He was killed, and he rose again on the third day. But in this moment, Jesus is sending a strong message to them that they needed to grasp about why they were being trained and discipled. I'm going to die, he says. This is going to happen. Peter, I know you want to do the whole tent theology thing up on the mountain, but that's not going to work. I'm going to die. It's why I'm here. That nothing is more important than this. And you need to know that this future that I'm getting ready to walk into is the sovereign plan of God. I will be delivered to them. And I'll be delivered by God's providential purposes. And they will kill me. I will rise again on the third day. Now the disciples walked away grieved. It seems like they missed what he said at the end. They were stuck on the death. They didn't hear him say, I'm going to rise again. What Jesus was trying to do is help the minds of the disciples to get focused on the gospel. Their minds were all over the place. It was on their new power, their new ability. It was on the idea of a new earthly political kingdom. It was mesmerized by the incredible works that Jesus had been doing. But what they needed to focus on was why Jesus came. And the most important knowledge we have about Jesus is the knowledge of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the gospel. And gospel-mindedness is absolutely essential in order for us to be faithful disciples of Jesus. Gospel-mindedness. God came to this earth as a man, robed in human flesh, yet remaining perfectly divine. He was born to die. That was his mission. Death, burial, resurrection. And all who believe in him and follow him will be saved. And as we become his disciples, his mission becomes our mission. We are to do everything in our lives centered on his death, burial, and resurrection. His gospel trumps everything. His gospel orders our lives. His gospel structures our lives. But Paul said in Philippians, let this mind be in you which is in Christ that he left heaven for us. He became a man like us. He died on a cross for us. Think this way. Be mindful of this. Let everything you do center on what Jesus has done for you. Think about it like this. Jesus is to sit on the throne of our hearts and the gospel is to sit on the throne of our minds. Gospel mindedness. Because nothing is more important than the gospel. And as Christians, we never move on from the gospel. And all that a disciple thinks, says, and does is to be filtered by a belief in and a commitment to the gospel, gospel-mindedness. In fact, Mark said it this way in his telling of the story. Mark eight thirty six: whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How's your discipleship journey going? Are you focusing on the heart of it? Daily abandonment, undivided attention, humble dependence, gospel-mindedness. May God help us to realign our focus, to become faithful disciples.
of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer.